I am super excited about this episode. We have a networking expert coming on and we talk about what to do in your network when you get a ransomware attack. I bet you've been wanting to know that answer. So stay tuned. You could restore it Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and have with me possibly my PEX consultant, Prasanna Malliant. How's it going, Prasanna? I'm, I'm good, Curtis. And just for people, that's P-E-X, not P-E-C-K-S. <laughs> yeah, this is the piping, the, uh, the modern piping alternative to copper which I think is far superior. And uh, you know what? Just for, just for those that are watching this on on video, which is only a handful of you, but I'm going to tilt my camera up. And this is what my office looks like right now because I got yet another pinhole leak in my um, second story bathroom water supply, which happens to be right above my office. And yesterday I was just sitting here at my desk and I get this drip drip on my face. You're like, am I sweating profusely? Yeah. And the pipe, the pipe is actually over there. The, the, the joint that's leaking is actually over there, but you know, the water finds its way, you know, along the drywall seam and then it just sort of drips down onto my face. But you know what though, Curtis, I have to say congratulations on finally finishing your other project. Which we should tell oh, our yeah, listeners, my other, right? Yeah, yeah. For those who have been following along, my other project is is. I mean, it, it's still you know at this point it's ninety eight percent done. But you know, I have put the the stair, you know, the the, the flooring on the stairs. Um, it looks really good. Uh, it looks way better than the ceiling in this room. I will say that. <laughs> um, and now there's the official first mess on the new floor. <laughs> yep. Just, as I look at down, some point, it's going to happen. You know. You know? Yeah. Well, apparently that some point is today. Yep. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So the plumber, who is a good guy, uh, he's been here before. Um, he um, he's talking to me about. He knows a guy that does uh, PEX repiping. So we'll we'll see. Our listeners we'll see will learn that. all about water piping soon in the next few episodes <laughs> as we go through more this. more than you ever wanted to know. Uh, and by the way, I did check. They can go through the attic. So um, that is a that is a real possibility for the um and um yeah so anyway um and i just realized that uh my son-in-law is home today he's not normally home i just heard him making noise i hope he gets his bath out of the way before the plumber gets here (laughs) i I didn't warn him Uh, i actually hear i hear a bath going on right now so so that answers that question way too much information going on at the Preston household listen Yeah, we want to bring on our guest. Uh, He is both, I would say, a friend of the pod. He's also been an enemy of the pod at once. You may recall that we had an episode where basically we just argued with Tom without without him being here to defend himself. Um, That was over a blog post that he said uh, something about uh, backup people reporting to security people. And uh, I think I had an issue with that or something. Tom has been in the industry about 20 years and he is an event leave over at Gestalt IT. The, uh, what would you call it? The makers of the Tech Field Day series, which uh, uh, my employer has used quite a bit. And um, uh, we're glad to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Tom (laughs) Hollingsworth. Well, thank you for having me on, Curtis. It was uh, it was fascinating to listen to an episode where I was I was arguing with somebody and I wasn't even here. But uh, I I I love I love listening to you guys and I've learned quite a bit. In fact, uh, the very first time that Curtis and I ever met at Tech Field Day back in 2011, he was teaching me about data deduplication and I was trying to convince him that IPv6 was important. And I can tell you which one of those things panned out a lot better than the other. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, is it, it's, it's, it's that the thing where you do the NAT behind the thing? That's what I recall really learning from you was that you got to do NAT. If you want me to come IPv6. crashing through your roof like the Kool-Aid man, just keep it up, yeah. my man. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I wanted to bring on somebody that actually understood networking far better than me, right? Which, which is mo- basically m- many people in the world. With ransomware attacks, one of the things that we talk about is once you've, um, you know, figured out that you actually have a ransomware attack, you you want to isolate the network, and there there's a discussion. You know, I've been talking with with CISOs lately, and and and. What, what appears to be the reality is that that few environments actually do the the actual full like we just we're just shutting everything off right go um, grab the cable pull it out quick yeah, quick quick actually, I don't know Tom did you ever watch uh, Alias when it was on I've With seen Jennifer a couple Garner of episodes and, yes okay well there's an episode in there when they were having a, a cyber attack and the uh, what's his name. Um, uh, Marshall Flankman comes running into the data center and he just literally starts flipping, flipping power switches. He's like, they're downloading all the files off the server. And he, down, he just flips all the power switches off. And so, you know, on one end, there is the complete like networking shutdown, like literally both internal and external. Right. Um, because, you know, once the once the ransomware is inside, it's going to try to crawl around and, and make things worse. So that's one way. And then there are, you know, and, and then there's the, those that go, well, well, I'm just going to turn it off or I'm going to unplug the cable at the one server or the three servers that appear to be infected and I'm not going to worry about the rest of the network. And somewhere in the between those two extremes is what everybody else does. And maybe um, we should also talk about basics of networking before we jump into this. Basics to talk right? about the details. Yeah, because just <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Persona. What, what no, do you think I, we should be talking about first? No, I think it's sort of because what you just mentioned, Curtis. Like everyone might think, oh, all computers are plugged into the same network, right? I think it's important to talk about some of the best practices from networking, Tom, if you could, about sort of network isolation, VLANs, other things like that, before we get into sort of the other side of things. Yeah, so please explain <laughs> all networking technology, <laughs> period, well, before we get the started. The good news is you've already talked a little bit about it because it's just a series of tubes, pipes, if you will, that we <laughs> send things through. Uh, now, the, the, the important thing to realize when you're trying to think about how ransomware propagates through a network is to realize that um, the way that networks have traditionally been built is we have this perimeter on the outside. You know, it's probably bounded by firewalls and a bunch of other stuff. And it looks really, really imposing like castle walls. But inside of the network, it's a whole lot easier to get around. And that's just due to the nature of the way that, that networks operate. I mean, Ethernet is effectively like trying to shout out somebody's order number at a fast food restaurant and hoping that you get the right one. Everybody's going to hear the message, but if it's not meant for you, we're just going to ignore it. But the problem is, is that that allows you to propagate a lot of information very quickly. And that's what ransomware is trying to take uh, advantage of whenever it's, it's trying to uh, do almost like, you know, reconnaissance lateral movement in the network. So I'm, I'm looking for a whole bunch of um, potentially vulnerable servers going all the way back, you know, to the beginning of my professional IT career. I was actually working on a help desk uh, when the SQL slammer worm came out and boy you'd be surprised how many people had that port open to the internet uh, because everything shut down and it was really weird to see that and you're like well you know at the time i'm i'm kind of freshly minted in my career and i'm like well how could that happen and and now all these years later i look at it and go oh my god these people were stupid because you're not supposed to do that but that's one of the things that people want to take advantage of because the, the systems want to talk to each other they want to be able to exchange information that's the purpose of a network you actually right. have to do extra work to prevent them from talking to each other. Right. Yeah. I think that's, you know, I, I, and the, the number of times I went in and out of data centers uh, over the years, I remember only one uh, where they had very solid internal firewalls, basically, right. That, that, that it was very difficult to do, to traverse laterally within the organization. And that was actually into it. Uh, right. And, and it's because of what they felt they had. Right. They had all of this very uh, sensitive personal data, thanks to their, you know, they, they had QuickBooks, they have TurboTax, they have all of that stuff. And so they had to basically firewall off systems between each other to prevent that lateral movement that you're right. By design, in most networks, you buy a switch, you buy it. Well, a bunch of switches, you plug everything in 
and everything, everything can talk to everything. Um, and unless you do something to prevent it, a lot of those ports that you talked about, right? Just like the SQL uh, issue, a lot of those ports are visible to the internet, right? I, I think a, another one would be a, a vCenter, right? And Hyper-V, yeah. the, that those ports being visible to the internet. I suppose you hear about that a lot as well. Yeah, I usually do whenever there's some kind of uh, a vulnerability that comes out and everyone's like, I hope you don't have these exposed to the internet. And you can literally hear the scrabbling as people run to their keyboards to figure out if that's the case. <laughs> but, you know, as, as Prasanna yeah. mentioned, I mean, we have ways to kind of like segment networks away from each other. And it's funny that you bring up that, that Intuit had kind of a, a rigorous internal firewall structure, because in my experience, um, companies or organizations that are very uh, heavily regulated, have mm -hmm. much more strict internal structure. And the reason for that is because they need the ability to say for a fact, Curtis cannot see anything on this network because he hasn't been authorized to see it. Now you can do that through software constructs. I mean, VLANs, virtual local area networks are kind of the, the most common way to do it where we, we effectively divide some uh, uh, partition on the switch and we say, this port belongs to this VLAN so it can only talk to other ports that are on that VLAN. Uh, but that's not even good enough for some organizations. And, and the, the one that everybody always thinks of is Mission Impossible, the Tom Cruise movie, with the, the machine that's in a vault that's not connected to anything else. We would call that an air gap system, or you can have an air gap network. Uh, a lot of times things like um, HVAC or management systems are air gapped from the rest of the network because they have different controls and different needs. But I also don't trust those people to um, secure their stuff. So I'm gonna build a wall in front of that air gap or just completely isolate it, it itself so that I don't have to worry about securing it. And if uh, you, you say HVAC, you say things like you know uh, um, environmental control systems and any security people listening to this podcast are immediately thinking, man, those are back doors that I can use to get into the system because no matter what, they're still gonna have to be connected to the network somehow. And that just increases your, um, you know, your threat profile. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think most people who think about home networks, right, everything's typically flat in a home, mm -hmm. right? Everything can talk to everything, every single IoT device out there, right? And they're not always thinking about, hey, I got this smart light bulb, isn't it great? Isn't it awesome? And then realizing, that's on my network. Everything is now exposed and could be potentially exposed if there's a security issue with that single device. Yeah, those devices are, you know, they obviously have an IP address. They have some kind of a control system. You would hope that most of them have some kind of a security function that allows them to, <laughs> to securely communicate back to whatever controls them. But multiply that by a factor of 10 for all of the devices that could be on your average enterprise network. And when you start saying things like, you know, access controls for those devices or port security, like network engineering and, and operations folks, like they just start breaking out into hives <laughs> because like the, the, just the amount of work that it takes to create that level of security is its own monster. I mean, anyone who's ever deployed a technology like 802.1X, which is effectively, I am only going to allow authorized devices to be plugged into this port knows that like there's this whole enrollment process and are you on the authorized users list and what happens if you're using a different device today and it's just it's maddening and it it drives people to insane to the point where and that's the normal people who know what they're doing could you imagine an executive plugging their laptop into a network port one day and going this doesn't work and you tell them oh it's doing that on purpose because we want to keep everything secure what do you think is going to happen the executive's probably going to look at you and go i don't care make my turn laptop. it off exactly <laughs> We don't need that. <laughs> it's getting in yeah. my way. Yeah. Well, I know that when we when we had um, you know we had a, a a security person on, and they had a list of things that they wanted people to do that they felt were common sense that were um, ways to prevent. Basically, sort of, I, I think the proper thing today when we talk about ransomware is to just assume something in your in your world is going to get ransomware, right? It's just, it's, I think it's just impossible to, to, to stop it 100% of the time. So just assume that's going to happen. So then there's all about uh, how to prevent it from 
activating itself from talking to the command and control servers and also the lateral movement, right? So he talked Reducing about the limiting radius. lateral movement, right? So what's that? Limiting yeah, limiting the blast, the blast radius. radius. So, yeah. so Tom, what, what kinds of things besides VLANs, because even VLANs, you know, we have the, we have the VLAN for this and the VLAN for that. Still all the servers within that VLAN can talk to each other. What else can companies do uh, with modern networking equipment to prevent lateral movement or to basically prevent it from everything and then, and then uh, selectively allow it for certain servers? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that a completely flat network is not a stable network. I mean, there is a limit to the amount of chatter that a network can tolerate before it starts running into problems. Um, Ethernet is not a, a medium that allows for a large number of hosts because eventually they're going to, you know, it's like recording a podcast. Eventually with too many guests on the podcast, you're all going to want to talk over the top of each other and Ethernet doesn't like that. So once you hit a certain boundary, you kind of have to divide it up into these little domains, um, collision domains or what we call them. And that's one of the things that a VLAN is. But as we've learned over the years about what we really should be doing, we've kind of built a superset of that. And anyone out there who has been reading any kind of the tech press recently or been to any trade show in the last couple of years has probably heard of something like zero trust network architecture or, or you know, just zero trust in general. It's a buzzword. I'm, I'll be the first to admit it. But the principles behind it are fairly sound. What you do is you take the tools that you've already been given, those ones that I told you make your network team break out in hives, and you try to implement them in such a way as to reduce the complexity of the implementation. And think about like, you know, think about a teenager and they want a, a list of uh, things that they can do when they get a car. Are you going to tell them you can do anything you want, but you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this? Or are you going to be more explicit? You can only do these things. And if it's not on that list, you can't do it. Well, most people would say, well, I'm only I'm going to do the second thing because I want to make sure that they're only going to school and to work into this one friend's house. But we don't build networks that way. I mean, we, we typically allow as much as possible because of the situations we find ourselves in where something doesn't work right and we don't know why. So we will put a little catch all at the bottom of the, the access list and go permit everything else. And then we leave it. And that's the worst thing that you can do. And what zero trust network architectures try to do is they try to say, okay, that server over there is running our backup software. What should it, what should communicate with it? And how should it be communicated with? You know, maybe it only needs to accept connections on these three or four ports. Maybe it only accepts connections from these authorized users. And you're effectively creating an isolation for that unit. And if something needs to access it and you're having problems with it, the software usually allows you to kind of dig into that a little bit and go, oh, it looks like that this program did an update and it now needs to communicate over this port uh, and I need to allow that port. But you're doing it in a, in a way that allows you to kind of control that access. But more importantly, what happens is, is that when something tries to operate outside of that access control, it slams it shut and hopefully will send you some kind of a warning. You know, hey, we just noticed that this server over here is trying to communicate with the rest of the network on port 445 and I know it shouldn't be doing that, you need to take a look at it. And so limiting that blast radius, that broadcast capability, tends to prevent lateral movement. And like you said, people who are going to attack you are, are going to be dedicated in doing it. Either they're gonna be dedicated to looking for a very specific exploit and just kind of hauling in whatever they can do, or they're gonna be looking to attack you, you specifically, however they can get to you. That second kind of attacker, very difficult to block. It's like a door lock. A dedicated burglar is going to get into your house. You're looking to prevent more of the first one where it's like, oh, we were able to get in through your HVAC system. And boy, we're going to turn this thing loose and see what open file shares you've got out there and what we can do with them. You, you need to create structure in the organization that does not allow people to move laterally, that, that prevents them from accessing things or worse yet, alerts you when things start doing a lot of scanning across your network, looking for those kinds of things, because the, the rest of the group that's trying to get into your network doesn't know that stuff's there either. They're going to have to go looking. And just like the burglars that are casing the joint, you need to look for those people. So multiple things popped up in my head, Tom, as you were talking. So the first is, as you're talking about the burglar example, I'm going to bring this up again, 
for the second week, but Curtis had recommended reading The Cuckoo's Egg. I don't know if you've read that book, Tom. I highly recommend you read it. It's basically 1980s. A hacker gets into a mainframe and starts moving laterally across all these like military networks and science networks because everything was connected. And yeah. like you said, that example was go and try all the door locks and he would try default passwords. And some of these systems like the mainframes, people would not change the defaults. And so he got in and it was just that lateral movement across everything in the environment. So that's like the first thing that came to mind as you were talking um, the other thing that also came to mind is I totally get the reason to have like that zero trust and only enable services that and patterns that are known to be valid and disable everything else. Uh, my question is, as a network engineer or operations person, how do you manage that at the scale? Because there's so many applications, so many servers, it's hard to predict what's going to talk with what. Um and coming up with, because like everything's all connected. Like in my mind, I think about like Facebook and graphs, right? Everything is connected in the world, right? And so everything in your network to some extent is probably connected in some form or fashion. So how do you sort of go about even coming up with, okay, these things are the things that should be talking to the backup server in your example. So it takes a lot of teamwork because as a network person, I don't care what's running over my network. I just need to make sure that these two things can talk to each other. And so in a way, like if you've ever deployed a server, um, you, you have a list, okay, it needs to communicate using this protocol over these ports, or you know, uh, think about uh, opening something like, I need to open HTTPS to the server, but not HTTP because I don't want it to ever communicate over HTTP. And that's actually one of the things that we've noticed a lot recently is that a lot of protocols that used to have their own dedicated ports have now just started writing over uh, HTTP and HTTPS because it's just easier. Uh, BitTorrent was actually one of the first ones to start doing this because they're like, well, 80 is going to be open anyway, which is the port for HTTP. So we'll just ride on that because most people fire, most people's firewalling systems just allow that by default because that's what the web uses. And so it gets kind of insidious and you almost have to think at a higher level. So what it crack open any networking textbook in the world and they're going to give you this seven layer model. It's like a seven layer dip from Taco Bell, but there's no refried beans in the seven layer OSI model. But we play a lot in the bottom of that where the physical connections happen, where the IP addresses allow systems to talk to each other. Once we get above a certain level, that's where the applications take over. And as networking people, we're not as concerned about that. But boy, the server people are because, oh, you know, I need to be able to have these two devices talking to each other. I need to make sure this is all unimpeded. And the first thing that happens when two servers can't talk to each other is you go to find the network <laughs> people and you're like, you need to tell me what's going on here. And then invariably, like the security team gets drawn in because like, oh, no, we told him that he had to block that because nobody should ever be using that. And, and you you really do have to pull those people together. I mean, think of, you know, think of a book like uh, Gene Kim's Phoenix Project. Like you can't work in isolation anymore as much as we might like to because so many things are so inter interdependent now it's like you know the the old joke is is what does the server do i don't know unplug the cable and we'll see who screams the loudest you want to figure out what people uh, what port is being used let's block it and see who comes to yell at us like that's kind of the way you have to do some of these things because yeah. the other thing and we we all know that nobody nobody ever skips documentation right I realized while editing this episode that we forgot to throw out our disclaimer. Uh, Prasanna and I work for different companies. He works for Zoom. I work for Druva. This is not a podcast of either company. It is an independent podcast. So uh, the opinions that you hear are ours. Also, if you'd like to join the podcast, please reach out to me at WCurtisPreston on uh, at Gmail or at WCPreston on Twitter or linkedin.com slash in slash Mr. Backup, and you'll find me. Uh, we'd love to have you join. And also, be sure to rate us at your favorite podcatcher. Thanks a lot. Now, on to my silly story. You brought up an old memory of mine. Literally, like my first months in being a sysadmin, we were trying to decommission, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the first computer designed to run Unix was the 3B2. And the uh, AT&T had a 3B2, I think it was like a 3B2-1000, and it was their attempt at a multiprocessor architecture. And we had this beast, and we were trying to decommission it. And uh, we had gotten down to, we had find, you know, and, and we had gotten down to that phase where it's like, well, we're just going to turn it off, and whoever yells will be 
the one that we missed, right? But I remember the um, we had uh, stripped it all of all of its regular networking cable. I don't exactly remember exactly why, but I remember that there was one cable left and it was running across the floor. And we were doing the last like download of, of whatever it was off of this server onto something else. And the manager for that cost center was in there and he kept stepping on the cable and um, we told him that he was slowing down the download whenever he would step on the cable. And um, we actually caught him. We left him in the data center. We actually caught him like watching the monitor and like the throughput speed and sort of stepping on and stepping up and off and off <laughs> on the cable. <laughs> That's anyway. Nice. Yeah, good good stories. Uh, so the, the question I want to ask you about all of the things you just talked about, is this something built into modern networking equipment or is this, uh, you know, are these extra applications that I'm buying that then configure that networking equipment for me? So it can be both. The, the basics of being able to isolate hosts and configure systems has been built in for years. I mean, anyone can write an ACL, right? The thing is, is that scaling that across a large organization is where it typically falls down. Eventually, your security team can't keep up with all the changes. They throw their hands up in the air and it lies fallow for as long as it takes for you to get infected. So the additional tools that are basically being brought to market and are, are popular now kind of organize that system. They put a, a, a shiny UI on it, if you will, to to go in and say, okay, I, I want to enable port security on these ports. Because back when I started this, port security was, if it isn't being used, shut it off. Just like shut down the port. And then if somebody plugs into it and it doesn't work, well, then now we know we need to enable that port and we need to know who's trying to use it. But now you have the ability to like have somebody plug in a device, whether it's an IoT system or what mm -hmm. have you. And this the device will like register with the system. It'll say, hey, I need access. And then the system can come back and say, hey, it looks like somebody plugged in an S thermostat over here. Well, that's actually a bad example because they don't use wires, but, you know, a, a laptop or some other kind of device. You need to go like check it out or you can even set a policy that says I'm going to allow you for now. But it, I have the ability to just cut it off if I need to or if it's one of these recognized device classes or something like that. So for smaller systems you know, for, for smaller organizations, if your IT department isn't already completely overworked, you can implement some of this by hand. It's just a matter of if it works really well, that means you're going to be spending a lot of time tuning that system to keep working effectively. And once you get past a certain point, the, uh, the solutions that do this are reassuringly expensive because they're worth it. Right. Oh, like, I understood. Because they, they would help you save the, the, the labor. And is there a category of these types of tools, the, the, a category name that we give to them? Uh, there's there's a bunch of different ones. Uh, access management is typically one that you, you see. Um, honestly, tools like Aruba ClearPass or uh, Cisco ICE, uh, ISE, uh, Integrated Services Engine or Integrated Security Engine. I forget which one it is. But they're they're out. They're not identity and access management, although they can be integrated that way. Um, there are some smaller ones that, that have these capabilities. A lot of it is, is mostly figuring out what you need because there's different, you know, some systems are, are configured so that you're controlling access to devices. I only want authorized people to be able to log into this device and make changes to it. Well, that's different than I want to change the way that people in my network are accessing data. Like that is a different kind of identity and access management. So you need to do a little bit of investigative work to make sure that you're uh, properly using the right tool. Because if you spend a lot of money on one that doesn't give you what you want or does a, a, a terrible job of it, then not only are you going to be upset, but the people that are authorizing your budget are not going to be very happy with you either. Now, a lot of these changes, if I think about an enterprise environment, things are easier to a fair extent to control, right? If you're looking at servers or virtualization, other things like that. But then I go to think about other environments like a school, right? Where you have students coming and going, right? Or a stadium or a conference center, right? Does it get significantly more difficult to do what you talked about, Tom, in those environments? Or can the same tools apply there as well? 
yes and no. Um, I'm I'm the typical IT nerd. The answer is it depends for whatever question you ask. (laughs) But I'll tell you that in some ways, um, schools and other places where your user base is not employed directly by you can have a slightly easier time if you're willing to um, sacrifice a little bit. So I know that there are a lot of colleges out there that treat their student dorm networks like the wild, wild west. (laughs) We don't care what goes on out there, but we're not going to keep an eye on it either. So like if there's a, you know, a piece of ransomware or something that's running rampant through the system, all we did is tell you that you had to have your antivirus up to date to be able to join our network. So, so what? Uh, The stadiums are actually a a really interesting uh, problem too, because not only do you have a a group of users that are outside of your control, they're very transient. Um, In a lot of those places, like they, they actually have, uh, wireless networks that are set up so that um, they can only talk out. Like they block all device to device communication, which is something that you can do. It's a little bit more complicated, but it effectively treats um, the stadium itself like a demilitarized zone in a, uh, in a, in a security structure. So for most people that are, that are familiar with it, you know, you've got the outside internet, which is big and scary. You've got your inside network, which is soft and, and, you know, uh, you don't want it to get hurt. And then in the middle, you have the DMZ, which is basically the moat where you're like, I'm going to put everything that I don't care if it gets attacked out there so that if it breaks, it can't get back into my network. And so, but the other other thing there is I only allow certain traffic to come back through so that if something bad were to happen, I can just basically cut it off and sink it into the moat and I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, hotels have a similar model, right? Where the base, uh, I know having having plugged in multiple devices that needed to talk to each other in hotel networks, they don't like that very much. Uh, and you end up having to bring basically your own router if, if that's something that you want to do, right? Um, so, the, so it sounded like, um, if I understood you correctly, the access management part is this sort of basic security thing that there are tools that do just that. And then there's also this identity access, which is a, a bigger pain, I would I would imagine, but those that want that. And it sounds like when we put those two together, that's what, what we call a SIM tool, right? It's a, a identity and access management. But it sounds like there's just an access management part that for those that need just that, there, there's smaller and less expensive than a full yes. SIM tool. Yeah. Not not inexpensive, but just less expensive. <laughs> well, and it, it also matters as to what you're spending your resources on, because there are tools that will do this for free, but they are not supported at all by anybody other than people on a forum. And they'll be glad to tell you that you misconfigured something and go figure it out yourself. Like we, we dealt with that. And I'm not really crapping on the open source community because they do an amazing job of this. I'm crapping on the fact that open source communities are not as well supported as the bigger players in these markets. And that's honestly where the expensive part comes from. You're not paying for the software, although you, you kind of are in some ways. You're paying for somebody to answer the phone when somebody is like breathing down your neck because something won't work or something won't come online. And so, and and you're also trying to get to that point where it's it's not automated as much as that is as low friction as possible. Because what you want in situations is people to just be able to get on the network. Like that's that's the thing. If you've ever tried to log into a Wi-Fi network that has a captive portal that requires you to like accept a whole bunch of licensing agreements and type your room number in and all that other stuff, you know that it's not the most frustrating thing, but it's definitely not what you want to hear. As opposed to like, oh, this device has already been pre-authorized because you logged in with your Active Directory username. Well, we'll just let it on the network. That's completely frictionless. But the amount of effort that it takes to make it frictionless is where your time and resource investment is going to come from. Tom, I know we started this all out with Curtis asking, how do you prevent lateral movement in networks, right, from ransomware? Just given the fact that ransomware does move laterally in a lot of networks, does this mean people are not using these tools or have not configured the networks correctly? Because it seems like if you did all the things that we just talked about, it should have prevented a lot of the lateral movement that we see in ransomware today. Well, Prasanna, I'm going to tell you something that my dad always tell me, and you have to understand my dad grew up in the country. If a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass every time he hopped. So... Yes, if you turn on all of these tools, you will cut down on a lot of this stuff. But does that mean your network's not working correctly? 
No, it just means that we didn't enable all these extra features that we have to keep track of because I can get four, uh, four network ports on a hub and plug four devices in there and they're going to work. Is the best way for them to work? Absolutely not. But I also don't have to do a whole lot of extra configuration. A lot of people are looking at this from the perspective of, I need to make sure that everything is, is able to communicate with everything else. They're not looking at it like you like the example you had earlier, Curtis, when you log into the hotel Wi-Fi and I can't talk to anything else on the hotel Wi-Fi. They're not thinking in a in an isolation mode. And we're, we're, that ship's turning because a lot of people are now realizing that, that that traditional idea of having a very stiff, crunchy perimeter with a very soft internal network doesn't work so well because what ends up happening is is that once people get through the perimeter, they have free reign to do whatever they want. You you do have to build these controls in place to effectively slow them down or to herd them to places that you want them to go. And that's what a lot of people have spent time developing and working on. And there's varying degrees of success to make that work. It has to shift the mindset though. Um, you know, now application people are like just turn on all the ports and I'll turn them off later when I tell you which ones I don't need. You won't because you'll get busy <laughs> right. doing something else. It's like developers. They're like, I'm going to load everything I can possibly think of into memory so that I know the library that I need is there. And then you wonder why your, your uh, application is consuming like three terabytes of RAM. It's like, uh, maybe you need to pay, pair back a little bit on that. Yeah. So it, it sounds like these tools are there. I think a lot of people do use them, but you talked about like in the very beginning, you, you said that people's heads are going to start spinning or whatever, because there is a lot of work involved in implementing these things. And the moment you flip that switch from, you know, per, you know, from everything is permitted to only the things that are permitted are permitted. Uh, you're going to get 5,000 tickets, right? I can't do this and yeah. I can't do that. And they, they see that, they see that very real worry. Uh, and, and I think it stops many people from implementing this because they just see it as the amount of work they're going to have to do to initially implement it. Um, they're, and they're not seeing the risk of what's going to happen when they get a ransomware infection and then it just goes crazy. <clears throat> Most tools that are, are set up like this, uh, they have a learning mode where they will, you can put them in place and they just sit there and they watch for at least the first mm -hmm. you know, week or two. And they're mapping out all of these application dependencies. So you know, the backup system needs to receive traffic on this port for this application from this subnet. And then it allows you to carefully craft that rule so that only devices from the subnet can talk to that server on these ports and nothing else. And if you let the tool go long enough, you'll be able to like suss out exactly what you need to know. But yeah, that first day you click the switch to from, you know, allow list to deny list is just like you're you're staring at the ticket queue because you're like, oh, what happens if I if this machine hadn't been turned on for a week? Yeah. Or and what? Is, you know, yeah. Yeah. It just it, it, it is. It's maddening because you're always going to wonder if you didn't get the right stuff. But like you said, would you rather be worried about one machine that can't talk to another? Or would you be worrying about the fact that you're getting a phone call from the CIO saying, uh, yeah, the database has just got encrypted by this new flavor of malware that we haven't seen yet. Uh, why did that happen? Yeah. The, another thing I want to ask you, I want to sort of move forward into the, the ransomware part here. Although, Prasanna, I'm so glad you basically told us to go backwards. You always, you're really good at that. You know, you're really good at making me go backwards. Uh, anyway, I want it. So one of the things, so we talked about trying to limit lateral movement. Another thing that was suggested was to not permit uh, new, new, either new domains, like domains that just recently were created or domains that got recently active, right? From a DNS perspective. Is that, is that, still fall under the networking purview um or uh, is that like is that another world it, it anything that involves names and not numbers tends to float up towards the application team or the security team okay. 
and the reason for that is because, like you said, like one of the things that we, that we see a lot in security now is it's this idea that you want to black hole things that are that are relatively new. Like, why is this machine suddenly starting to communicate over a DNS name that I've never seen before? But it also requires right. that your devices have the intelligence to be able to resolve that because, you know, application layer firewalls will see oh, you're trying to access this service that I don't recognize on a domain that I've never seen before. Whereas a, a lower level, almost like a packet filtering firewall will say, oh, well, that's an IP address connection on this port from here to there. Uh, I don't see a reason why I shouldn't be using that. And gotcha. so you, okay. you, you kind of have to integrate those two things together because like you said, you know, something doesn't look right here because why would it be contacting a brand new DNS name that it should it has no reason to contact or worse yet uh, uh, you can ask the people over at SolarWinds, why is this dll suddenly talking to dot ru addresses right yeah well it, when he says new domain names he actually means domain names that were like recently registered not just domain names that are new to your network and then also oh, yeah. ones that that were they were registered but they had they hadn't been active or something like that so that sounds like that's a dns uh you know there's a ddi world right um we had we had somebody on from that i think we need, need to have some because this is i think that's if you can reasonably do that where you can basically push a button just sort of like the 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 deny the allow deny thing if you can reasonably say i, I don't want it, i don't want anybody talking to domain names that were registered 24 hours ago right yeah it, if you could if you could do something like that it will of course also create some troubles uh, tickets, but I'm thinking far less. And if you could do that, it stops the command and control, uh, you know, the, the ransomware from reaching out and command and control. Um, it, it definitely slows the, the process down. But the, the one thing I will say there, though, is that you need to make sure that your users are expecting that change, because if it requires you to go out and check a list or uh, get some kind of an authorization to go to this domain name, even if it adds one second to the resolution time, that's one extra second that people are going to complain about. And you know who they're going to complain to? The networking mm -hmm. team, because the network isn't working. Not the DNS block list checker or the application that has this built into it. Oh, no, no. It's the network's fault because the packets aren't going where they're supposed to. As we used to say back back when I was, you know, when I first said that we, we would say the problem's under the floor, right? Uh, <laughs> meaning, meaning it was a networking problem. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead, Persona. So moving on, so we talked about how to prevent lateral movement, how to detect these uh, rogue uh, servers that are coming up. One thing I wanted to ask is, so say you do get hit by ransomware, right? They're able to move laterally. What happens next from a networking perspective? Well, I guess two questions. One is, how, do you, how would you go about bringing down your network or sort of isolating what needs to be isolated? Like, how do you actually figure out what's going on in your network? And then the second question is, okay, now that you've sort of identified that, how do you slowly recover from those situations? Yeah. Incident response is never fun because it's a whole lot of cleanup. And, uh, and, and the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to get people out of your network because there's, you know, there's obviously there's the tools that kind of run on their own and there are tools that kind of have to be piloted by people. So you have to create, uh, limits on the on the system to be able to stop that and fingers crossed that you're not in a situation where your entire network has been taken down by whatever is causing the problem because i've seen that before too where not only does it try to laterally move to infect systems it also throws up enough extra garbage that you are it's in you're incapable of logging into any of your management mm -hmm. networks so lesson mm -hmm. number one make sure all your management networks are kind of isolated <laughs> so that you always have the ability to use those but the first thing that i would do is I would cut off outside access immediately. I would lock the firewall in place. I mean, you don't have to like run through the data center screaming with your hair on fire and start yanking cables out like the alias episode, <laughs> but you need to be able to lock all of those connections down. And specifically, you need to look for ones that, you know, could be like, you know, from really weird external addresses or worse yet, ones that are coming in. Once you've blocked that external access in and out, you've got to do it in both directions. Because obviously you don't want anything getting out because the two things that I can think of are command and control traffic, if some kind of tool that's being uh, um, orchestrated or data exfiltration. Yep. And, right. and you're like, oh, well, I can stop those file transfers. Yeah, look up oil rig. It was, mm. uh, it was able to exfiltrate data through DNS queries. 
Like that's the kind of crap you have to worry about. So you've got to lock it down. Then you have to isolate because that's the other thing too. So can, but before I, you move stop, on, can yeah. I stop you there? Uh, so sure. how, how do you do that? Right. Is this, is this something where you have to create a button to press up, you know, cause this sounds like a lot of little steps you probably need to do to do this manually. Or is there something I can do up front that says in the event of a ransomware attack, push this button Hey, gummit, shut up. Anyway, uh, in the event of a ransomware attack, press this button and it does the 10 things I need to do. Uh, what, what do you think? Some of them do have a big red button. Press here to, to like terminate all firewall connections. But most of the time, you're going to have to create like a checklist or or have a system of like, okay, I'm going to go into these rules and I'm going to uncheck these five boxes and then I'm going to hit the terminate connections button to make sure that no new connections can be made. Also, if you have a rule at the bottom of your firewall list that says permit IP any any, take it out now yeah. because it's not doing you any good. But but more importantly, you you have to you know, uh, all kill switches have to be wired. There's no such thing as a magical switch that you can just hit. Even if it's one that the, that the provider has given you, investigate what it actually does. Does it dump the rules completely? Does it just like suspend the rules until you go in and manually add them? Remember that that could also cut off your connection to the firewall. So you need to have another way to get into it just in case that happens. Another reason for an isolated management network. But the the idea is, is that you 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 need to investigate what your options are because... God help you if you really do have to run down to the data center and yank the cables out. And if that is the case, and and, hey, it's just as valid as anything else. Can you make sure that you have the right keys, that you know which firewall you're yanking out of? Are there any other exits off of your network? Because that's another problem that you may run into. What happens if someone has created another exit off of your network, either accidentally or on purpose? And what happens then? Because, you know, it's just as easy for me to plug something into your network. And if there's another way off of it, I'm going to find it. The one other thing, though, I know you talked about, and it totally makes sense to kill all incoming and outcoming traffic. But just thinking a step forward, like when you're dealing with incident response, like doesn't that also take out like your chat channels, your Slack channels, your video conferencing, everything else? Like, what do you do at that point? Is it just hope you have everyone's cell phone numbers? You need to have a plan for out of band incident response because it's it's just like any crime scene. I need to figure out what's what's been hit, and I need to figure out how much of it is going to spread. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I can't shut my network down permanently because you know it's going to cost me X amount of dollars. Yes, but it's also going to cost you X plus whatever amount of dollars when the next system gets hit, when it uncovers a device that no nobody's patched it in years. Um, I'm not going to lie. Incident response can work over iMessage text threads for a good couple of hours while you try to figure that out. Or, you know, buy your incident response team like those little you know hotspots or enable the data plans on their phones so that they can join their laptop there and join a Slack instance outside of your network. Because yeah. that way, nothing is working internal to your network. Because that's the other thing, too. If, you, if this is something that's particularly insidious on a Windows system and your incident responders are using Windows systems and they join the network to be able to do incident response and their laptops get compromised because they join the network again, <laughs> you're going to feel really, really dumb. It's like uh, the professional when they blew up the bomb squad truck. It's like, come on, guys, what were you <laughs> expecting? You just reminded me of uh, there's a there's a series of commercials and there's one where the commercial is like it's like a horror movie. And the there's a bunch of kids. It's like the, you know, I got the guy with the the, the axe murders looking for the group of kids, and they're like, yeah. "Why don't we go hang out? Why don't we go hide in that shed over there with all the uh, with all the uh, machetes or something like that?" <laughs> yeah. Um. So so we talked about blocking external traffic. What about blocking internal traffic? You know, uh, basically the lateral traffic, uh, be, due to the we know we have ransomware and we know it's going to try to crawl. What about blocking that uh, access? So that's where you hope that your management networks are um, isolated. Because the first thing I would do going into a router is shut down the route tables. Prevent um, traffic from being passed across network boundaries. Um, What you're effectively doing in there is you are containing the damage to one area. Now, yeah, you're going to take things down. But if you can isolate that network 
as the location for wherever the problem is, you can then bring other networks back online and be relatively certain that they're not going to be infected. I really hope that you're not using like just regular routing, that you have some kind of a security boundary there because that makes it a whole lot easier. But you, you've got to think in, in phases. Obviously, you know, using the kill switch is going to take everything down, but then you have to start, you know, can I bring this back online? Is this going to be infected? What would I be looking for? Um, so I actually have a, a story about this. Uh, this happened last year to my children. Uh, one of them goes to the public high school here, uh, and I got a rocket text message from their IT department saying, please turn off all public school issued devices until further notice. And I'm like, uh-oh, somebody got hit with something fun. And this was like the last day before Christmas break or something. So we went in and we turned off my kid's MacBook, right? So now immediately... Because I, I know what the, the thing was. I don't want anybody to like phone home and get infected and then like infect the parents' networks or whatever. Okay, no problem. We just shut it off. But then I'm like, I wonder what it could be. Like, I, I'm kind of curious. And, and they've to this day, they've never disclosed what it was. But you would get an email like the next week. Oh, if you're using like a, a, a corporate phone or if you're using a MacBook, you can turn it back on. Well, that automatically kind of lowers the horizon of it has to be something that's focused on windows or something like that so then you start running through your head of what it could possibly be well in incident response you have to do the same thing what server got hit oh well it was the database server and it was running this version of uh, you know windows or sql server okay does that mean that max can get on the network do i want them on the network is it a situation where even though they can't be infected they could propagate something to another location like there's a lot that you have to go into because obviously the executives are going to be like when can we be back up and running and if you're a publicly traded company, oh, God, the stockholders are like outdoors with pitchforks and torches, and they want to know when they can get their dividends. And you're like, uh, when I figure out how much of this data got encrypted or stolen, and you're always going to be fighting that tension, and you can't just shut everything off forever. So that's part of incident response is you've got one team working on figuring out how to stop whatever infected you, but you've got another team figuring out how to bring things back online. That's why we call it business continuity now, right? It is interesting about the incident response. Have you seen cases like how do you actually, well, two questions I have. How do you figure out like that this segment, going back to what you said, you kill all the routes. How do you figure out that this segment is safe or not? And then I guess that, yeah, that's actually only one question. <laughs> Well, so typically what, and, and you're, you're effectively, when you create these boundaries, it's, it's like looking for the hot potato effectively, because unless you, like in the alias episode, just go click all the switches off, those devices can still communicate to each other at layer two. Now, where you don't want to have a problem is, is that it's in the data center, because if you isolate the layer two data center, now you've got a real problem because if those servers, if, if it's looking for servers, those servers can still get infected. That's why it's actually better to have like a, you know, a host route or something like that or something that, that kind of isolates that per unit thing. I mean, honestly, like a vSwitch is perfect for this because like if it's not bound for that host, I'm not going to let it go any further. But effectively, what you have to do is you have to look for chatter that's still going on in the network. Like you, you I've shut all this down. And I told my users to like disable their machines or, or turn them off or whatever. What's still trying to talk? And then you go take that on a case by case basis. Oh, hmm. this device is still sending traffic that it's, but it's looking for this server. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I can shut it off because I know that it's probably safe, but then you run into something like, Oh, this thing is chattering an awful lot. And it's chattering on a way that it shouldn't be chattering. Like that's how I've gone and found hosts that have been infected, but not by ransomware, but by early malware, because they just kept hammering the firewall with these outbound requests. And I'm like, hmm. you shouldn't be doing yeah. that. So it's, it's almost like a little bit of detective work. The good news is, is that, even though the network devices are kind of like dumb from the perspective of, I don't care what application is trying to talk where, they're really good at telling you that things are still generating traffic. It's like, oh, this port is still sending a ton of packets bound for this address on this location. And so mm -hmm. then you're like, oh, I think something might be up here. Do you ever see cases where people almost do a, like create a black hole on the device itself? Yes. To sort of sync the packets there so it doesn't go out rather than yes. having to necessarily do it on the switch? Um, you can. Uh, that's actually a really great way to determine what it's trying to contact is to create like a null route on the system. Uh, uh, going all the way back like three or four years, like Mar Marcus Hutchins, that's how he actually stopped a major outbreak of malware uh, for all the good it did him. He got arrested by the FBI later. <laughs> but he basically black holed a DNS name. Yeah. 
uh, he bought the domain, black holed it because if that domain name was active, then it would stop propagating. And so he figured that out by saying, oh, I wonder where this is going and I wonder what it's doing. You can do that. And it's actually the next step in incident response once you've isolated the system is I want to see how it behaves and what it's trying to do, because that could give me a clue as to what I got hit with and what they could be looking for. And that gives you, you know, a, a little bit of opportunity, but that's a little bit more of an advanced tool that you would, you would want to use uh, just because black holing traffic on a, on a device takes a little bit of setup, especially if you're fighting against people who don't want you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That, so it sounds like a, a lot of the things that you talked about in the last couple of minutes, they would be a lot easier to do again, if we segmented the network in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. We put people with Windows laptops on one network. We put people with Mac laptops on a network, another network. We put the, 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 the phones, right. That are doing the Wi-Fi. We put them on another network. Um, and we put servers on a different network. We put, maybe we put mm -hmm. servers of a different type on, on a different network. So that way you could basically say, you don't have to tell the, the, the users to not do anything. You can just say, shut off the, the laptop, uh, network. Right. Um, yeah. and you, you shut off the laptop network and so on and, and all the networks that where we don't currently, where we're not looking at and then, okay, who's trying to talk, who's trying to talk. Why is this server surfing the web? Yeah. <laughs> There's nobody and, over there. Why is this server going over port 80? Well, a lot of places already kind of have this by default, even if they didn't realize they were doing it because you have different classes of devices that you want to treat them differently. Like for example, the, uh, um, the server network, we want to have a little bit more security in there, maybe a little less host to host east to west traffic kind of thing. The wireless network where all the laptops and the devices connect, I'm a little less careful about that because I actually have identity management in place that validates the users when they try to log in. Maybe I have a guest wireless network for my for people that come into the lobby. That one's wide open to the internet, outbound only, so I don't need to worry about that quite as much. And then you know, like phones and printers and things like that that have very specific things. Like you know, I wouldn't enable Bonjour in my internal network, but maybe for the printer VLAN I would because I want people to be able to find a printer when they just you know, open up their laptop. So they've already created these segments. You just have to know where the buttons are to shut them off. So maybe the example is I want to isolate the servers from the rest of the network because I think there's something in there, but I can still leave the wireless network up, maybe have everybody join the guest access network and force them all out to the internet to do, you know, incident response or chat channels or something like that, where I'm, you know, it, but I'm creating these bounds so that traffic flows one direction only or it prevents certain things inside of other areas because you know there's nothing to say like the you know the the uh, SSIDs that are on printers that are like you know set up uh, yeah. set me up or something like that can't be compromised and then if they can get into your printer network it's like oh crap where can they go from there yeah and and bonjour of course would be the um, I, I don't know how would I define Apple it file but... sharing protocol. It is, it's almost like an auto configuration announcement uh, setting where uh, it, it, and you can thank Steve Jobs for this. He's like, I hate setting up printers. And so basically what he did is he set up a system so that the printers can announce that they exist and your laptop is constantly listening for these. Bonjour is another one of those protocols that is extra chatty and you kind of want to put bounds on it so that like you don't have the Apple TV four hallways down announcing itself to the people in accounting because one, it's annoying and two, you never know when you're going to do something you're not supposed to. Interesting. So, yeah, I guess a lot of these are really around setting up that initial network properly so that when you do have these issues, you can recover quickly and identify and then recover quickly, right? But if you don't have that initial setup done, then you're in for a world of hurt, I guess. <laughs> and not just initial setup. You actually do have to treat the network like a living, breathing organism. I can't think of a single server admin out there that installs, you know, Windows Server, what are we up now? 2020, 2023, Windows Server X, I don't know, installs it and then never patches it, never touches it again. Like, like you, people are probably just shaking even thinking about it. You cannot configure a network and then just leave it alone. You do have to go in and and tweak things and move things and change things. And, you know, not just when you're trying to fix a broken thing either. You have to like, okay, is this subnet big enough for the number of hosts that are in it? Should I create routes over here? It looks like there's a lot of extra traffic going on over in this direction. Maybe I need to disallow that because it looks like it's something that shouldn't be happening. Like if you're not constantly pruning back what you are 
working on then and that's the problem that a lot of the the uh, ransomware writers have figured out like a lot of a lot of their secrets if you want to call them that are just inadequate it support like we're going to hope that you have left this on by default and we're going to take advantage of it and use it and if you did i'm sorry but like you know if <laughs> any best practices guide out there says shut that off and you didn't shut it off are you in that big of a hurry yeah, well, we're we're living in a world where uh, you know people don't even change their default password. So, um, listen, here's the thing, Tom. My plumber's here, so uh, I, I, you know, I got a tradesman that actually showed up at two o'clock when he said he was going to be here at two o'clock. So I got <laughs> we got to shut this baby down. Uh, th- Tom, this has been this has been a great conversation. Um, so thanks, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. It's it's been fun to talk about networking with uh, with some folks uh, coming at it from a slightly different perspective and understanding, you know, what are we trying to accomplish with it, and, and in some cases, what are we trying to disallow? Absolutely. Thanks again, Persona. Once again, making me go backwards. I, you know me. <laughs> I try. You take one step back, two steps forward, or something like that, right? Something like that, <laughs> like that. All right. And thanks again to our listeners. Remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all.